Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel of the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes and I am hosting today's episode. Before we begin, I would like to pay my respects to the First Peoples of this nation, past, present and future. And today we have a wonderful guest, Professor Henry Reynolds. We're discussing his book, Truth Telling, and Professor Reynolds is a renowned Australian historian, grew up in Tasmania, worked for a long time at James Cook University up the other end of the country in Townsville, and as I understand it now, is back as a a professorial fellow at the University of Tasmania. So good afternoon. Henry. Good afternoon. Nice, nice to be speaking to you. Thank you very much. Now, the book we're talking about today is called Truth Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. It's a book which follows the history of Australia, or it's a tale of the history of Australia, particularly the way in which the British came to the country and the effects of that and what can be done about it. Now, could you let let us know, Henry, to begin, how you came to write this book? What made you wish to write this particular book? Uh, Yes. Um, Well, it it basically uh, came as a result of, of me thinking about the Uluru Statement. And in that statement, there were really three basic issues that were addressed. And one was a voice to Parliament, and that is the issue which has been taken up and discussed, and the committees meeting about it. But the two other questions that I think are equally, if not more important, were firstly the question of sovereignty, and second, the desire for truth-telling. And so the book really is in two parts. The first part is dealing with the question of sovereignty. And the second part is looking at truth-telling. Mm-hmm. So it's in, it, it is a direct response to the Uluru Statement, although in doing so, it obviously goes in many directions because the questions are often quite complex. Yes. Now, can I begin? I would like to begin our discussion by talking about the the concept or the term First Nations. Yes. And I understand that term, or in my understanding, refers to earlier human inhabitants of a particular parcel of land, in this case, the continents of Australia and surrounding islands. But the expression is first, not First Nation, but First Nations. So it seems yes. to signify more than an, a homogenous whole but actually distinct nations and territories. Yes, yes, and I think that's the most important thing. I think when the 
Europeans approached Australia, they had the idea that they were dealing with, with one nation, you know, with, with, they were dealing with one race, one people. Now, that's not the way that the people themselves uh, looked at the situation. The map of Australia, the map of, of Indigenous Australia is a very complex one. It is a mosaic of small language groups. And, you know, in a sense, those language groups have been reasserted as a consequence of land rights and the need to uh, establish which people uh, have, you know, putative rights over a particular piece of territory. So, uh, in my view, these small uh, these small groups were indeed nations, even though very small by European standards. Now, we know this to a large degree because of the languages. There are many different languages, and they were certainly of long-standing, and modern linguistic analysis indicates that in many cases there was very little interchange. So these small nations maintained their independence and their, uh, their commitment to their own language, their own customs, their own history over a long, long period of time. So they, there was no word meaning Aboriginal or Indigenous people. They saw themselves as belonging to their nation. And this became apparent to the Europeans soon after they'd arrived in Sydney. Uh, the idea that they, as they approached Australia, the idea was that these people uh, wandered across the country, had no real commitment to a particular place. But that was clearly not the case, and they, they came to realise that very quickly. And they came to realise that uh, as they travelled inland, um, they continually came across new people with different languages. And yes. even, their even their Aboriginal uh, guides that they frequently took with them uh, soon came across people they couldn't understand. So yes, uh, I think the idea that this was a, a mosaic of small nations is the way to, re to regard it. Yes, and um, you give some actually some very, to me, enlightening examples in the book, where the where people were, indigenous people were guiding Europeans around the place, and they did come across a territorial boundary, and there were actually customs observed, not just the language change, but there were actual. Oh yes, oh yes, diplomatic protocols. Hmm. Now, so that it it, 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 it flies in the face of that idea that we were dealing with one people or one race. Uh, they didn't see themselves in that way at all. And in a sense, they've gone back to confirming that they, uh, you know, are a particular, come from a particular group or increasingly from two or three groups because of intermarriage. Yes. Um, then the book itself has this, refers to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Could you explain for our audience what that is? Well, it was a statement 
uh, issued by a large gathering of Indigenous Australians from all over the continent who met at Uluru and over a long, you know, after, you know a, a long gathering, much discussion, uh, they drafted a statement which was addressed not just to the, the Australian government, but to the Australian people. Now, it was the culmination of a process that had been going on for some years. That is, there'd been uh, meetings all over the country. There'd been much discussion. And so when the statement was finally drafted, it represented more than just the view of those who were there. It was, it was a distillation. Uh, of, of, of the ideas. Now, there certainly were some dissidents who didn't really go along with it, but nonetheless, I think it it was the most interesting and important statement of the largest representative gathering that probably has ever been held in Australia. Right now, with with the statement itself, which is actually replicated at the toward the beginning of the book the one the statement has the states that the aboriginal and torres strait islander people were the first sovereign nations of australia and then it says quite powerfully that the nation has never been or their nations have never been ceded or extinguished and they coexist with the sovereignty of the crown yes now one question i had about that was there's almost a an internal inconsistency there because yes you can say well they they as a matter of fact they were never ceded and they were never extinguished but then the statement itself gives some credence to the sovereignty of the crown over the very same land how 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 is that best understood well i think the best way to express it is that uh, and this is an idea which is, is not commonly understood that you can divide sovereignty into external and internal sovereignty. What it suggests, I think, is that the Indigenous Australians, the people of Uluru, recognise the external sovereignty of the Australian state. That is, the Australian state uh, represented uh, Australia to the outside world. But Inside Australia, in, with internal sovereignty, uh, there was a continuity of Aboriginal sovereignty, and this coexisted. Now, this is uh, this is an idea. To, I mean, two things. One, this is not a common idea. This is an, an unusual idea for many Australians to comprehend. But also, it comes into conflict with, you know, you, you have to say profound legal doctrine. Mm. And the, the profound legal doctrine is that there is only one sovereign internally, and that is the sovereignty, well, it's shared between, obviously, by the Constitution, between the Commonwealth government and state governments. But they are the only holders of internal sovereignty. And that goes right back to the very start. I'm, I mean, the problem began even before the British arrived in 1788, because the assumption in Britain was that the Aboriginal, the Indigenous people of Australia, either weren't there, that, that, that the, the continent was, to a considerable thing, empty, or 
the local people who lived there did not have any form of sovereignty because they moved across the land with no clear ties to the land. So the British, when the British arrived, they became the first and only sovereign. Now, that's not the way it operated anywhere else in the, you know, on the boundaries of the European empire. So let's take North America, for instance. Now, the, the, uh, the French, the, no, the Dutch first, and the French and the, and the, uh, and the British and the Spaniards always recognized that the Indian peoples uh, had, had rights. They had rights to the land on which they, they lived, but also they exercised an internal sovereignty. And the American, the United States doctrine enunciated by the Supreme Court, the famous Marshall Court of the mm. American, uh, said that the Indians were domestic dependent nations with their own internal sovereignty. That is, they had the right to use their own laws and customs on their country. Now, that's the difference. Now, that wasn't the view in Australia. The, the view in Australia was there was no sovereignty when the British arrived, and therefore uh, there was no need for treaties uh, or conquests because there wasn't any sovereign there. It, 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 it was, a, it, it was a, a desert in terms of sovereignty. Now, that's why the Uluru Statement is, in a sense, revolutionary, because they are saying, no, uh, it, that our sovereignty has survived, uh, and it can coexist with the sovereignty of the Crown. And uh, in a way, uh, we don't understand that North America was settled uh, by uh, the British in the United States and Canada by the signing of treaties. And that was also the case in New Zealand, as people will know, the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840. Mm. And that was a recognition that the, the indigenous people had a form of sovereignty and it had to be treated. You know, that they came to the table and they could treat and, and uh, determine terms in which their sovereignty would survive. Yes. And with that, notion which we'll, we'll i want to talk a little bit about as the interview goes on but a bit later on as well at this stage the concept of the first nations it seems to me at least to have a certain tragedy in the term itself because if you were the first nation you're never really going to call yourself the first nation until someone turns up and they reckon they're they're the people running the show so you yes. And um and is is in a way what you we've just you've just articulated then a way of saying well we don't have to lose our status as being the first nation we're not talking about just us having a property right under your law we're talking about us well not me but the indigenous the first nations peoples being actually still the first nation and that there is a nation there that needs to be wrestled with under the law of the land. Yes. Yes, it, it quite clearly suggests that the only resolution of this jurisprudential problem is the, you know, the, 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 the drafting of new treaties. Now, once again, this is a new idea in Australia, but it's a very old idea, for instance, in Canada and as, as, as New Zealand. But the Canadian ex 
which uh, is most relevant to Australia. One, because it is equally a vast country with a great many different uh, Indian and Inuit nations, and that the, the, the British government in Canada started signing treaties in the 18th century, and it did so right up to 1920. And the whole settlement of the, I mean, the, the, the great wave of settlement from the lakes to the Rockies, you know, the, 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 the plains, the, the, great, the great plains of, of North America, mm. the prairies, uh, this was all settled by means of treaty making. Treaties negotiated between the Indians and the Canadian state, represented by the, 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 by the mounted police. And they're called the Numbered Treaties, and they still exist. Um, so almost every Indian from this area belongs to one of the treaty areas. And the treaties, uh, you know, they, uh, they certainly meant that the Indians lost a lot of their land. They had reservation land, they had certain rights on the reservation, and every year uh, there was an exchange of gifts, and that still happens. And in some of the provinces, Treaty Day is still a public holiday. Now, that process ended in the 1920s. But that meant that in British Columbia, and right across the north, you know, the vast, cold north, there were no treaties. And uh, so the Canadians in the last 20 years have started uh, writing new treaties. And these are a model, I think, for what could happen in Australia. That is, they are treaties with uh, groups of, of related nations who have cultural similarities and live in particular areas. And these treaties are negotiated with the, with the uh, Canadian government. And they say quite clearly, these are negotiations uh, of, you know, of, of two sovereign holders and they work out a quite detailed uh, treaty-making process. Um, it, it leads to some land being granted freehold. Uh, it deals with the Indian involvement in uh, development and resource development. It deals with the um, income that the Indians will receive and also their right to self-determination, that is, to, to run their own affairs mm. uh, using their own customary law. Now, this is, uh, as I say, this is a, in a, quite a, a thoroughly long-understood uh, process in North America. And it's that sort of process I think we need to look at. And with those, with, with those processes, Henry, what... What is the likely benefit to the local First Nations people? Because a couple of ideas or a couple of images come to my mind are that if you think about the Inuit in Canada or Indigenous people in lots of countries that were, that were colonies of Western countries, the First Nations peoples even now don't have the, seem to be in a worse position than the European descendants. and maybe a treaty these days might give some more material benefit to these people, but a lot of 
traditionally it doesn't seem that these people got a lot out of it. As you said, they gave up pastoral land and things like that. So oh, what... yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, I think, the, I, I think the new treaties, that is the new Canadian treaty-making process, is indeed providing real benefits. Uh, and uh, it, it is establishing a means by which the, uh, the Indians and the Inuit uh, can have a significant degree of internal self-government and that they also negotiate uh, income streams uh, from you know, resource development um, and it gives them um, it, it, it gives them an actual status in a way in the constitutional arrangement of the Dominion. And I think that uh, is important. And let me say, uh, I think people um, have missed the significance of the agreement that the Western Australian government has just recently concluded with the Noongar people. That is, the, the, the different groups, uh, related groups, occupying the whole southwest of Western Australia. And it's a very large area. And over a long period of time, uh, all the different uh, small groups, small nations, came together and negotiated with the government and the, it, it has just been concluded. Uh, it had to go through uh, a process of being challenged by dissidents. Uh, it went right to the High Court, I think. But now it is in operation and uh, it, uh, it, it saw a return of, you know, of any Crown land uh, automatically returns to the Noongar people. Uh, they have uh, institutions that have been established to manage much of their own affairs. It provides compensation of a considerable amount of money and investment in all sorts of, of um, uh, improvements in their you know, social circumstances. Now, various scholars have looked at this, see this as really the first modern treaty even though it hasn't been called that in Western Australia itself. But that, I think, is the first of these big regional agreements, which I think could be seen as treaties. Yes. The, your book has the title Truth-Telling, then it has the subtitle, the subheading Sovereignty, History and the Uluru Statement. Is There must be an important role in your mind for this concept of truth, not only truth, but actually telling truth, is that is that a necessary precondition or precursor to enabling people like me who and are not indigenous to actually seeing why treaty formation makes sense and should actually be followed? Could you explain what the what the role of truth telling is? Yes, well, in a way, it's. It's similar to what has happened in many parts of the world in the last generation. Uh, although it probably can be traced back to the decision after the Second World War to set up the Nuremberg Trials. Now, you probably know, uh, Stalin said, look, you know, we know their crimes. We should simply execute you know, maybe 10,000 of them of the leading Nazis. Um, but the American view was that, no, it, it is important. We certainly think 
many of them should indeed be condemned to death. But we need to have a public forum where the full facts of what can be discovered is made public. And that this is in itself important to, to all try and make certain that this can never happen again. Now, uh, since then, and there have been uh, organisations called truth commissions, that's the, you know, the generic title, <coughs> in uh, many parts of the world, particularly at the end of a particular problem period. Now, this was so with the end of apartheid in South Africa. This was true at the end of dictatorships in uh, military dictatorships in places like Chile and Argentina and Uruguay and also in Central America, but also at the end of the, uh, of the communist era in Eastern Europe. <laughs> so these truth commissions have had uh, you know, daring degrees of success, but above all, the victims, the victims have taken the view that this allows them to tell their story, <coughs> pardon me, and to be heard and that this is necessary if one is to overcome the terrible problems inherited from the past. Now, in a way, we had two... We haven't had anything like this in Australia, although we had two different bodies. You'll, you'll recall we have just been talking very recently in the last few days about the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death and Custody and then the Human Rights Commission inquiry into Tate Mm. Now, in a sense, these were both uh, truth commissions looking at very specific questions. And it's that sort of process that I think uh, needs to be done looking at the, the, the general history of Australia. And uh, I, I just think it, um, I mean, there has been a lot of, you know, a lot of history written and a lot of, you know, films and novels, uh, there's been a lot of people examined in the past, but I do think it would benefit from having uh, a serious process backed by the state, and if not by the federal government, then by the different states. And in some ways, the states, um, I mean, the Commonwealth government itself had no responsibility for Aboriginal affairs at all. It went to 1911 when they took control of the of the Northern Territory, and um, they um, uh, so so much of what happened, of course, happened as a result of the different colonial governments. So whether it's um, a process of different states, or whether it's uh, uh, you know a central national process, I do think we need some sort of um, considerable uh, attempt to. Um, uh, to look at this and look at it seriously. Yes, and I have a sense, like your view on this, that time is also quite essential here because as each generation passes, there there are so many of these First Nations around Australia that the customs and traditions would be harder and harder to keep. So, And especially when you look at the High Court decisions where connection to land is particularly important to acknowledge native title the more that the more time passes would the, do you think that would have a, a lessening would lessen the 
ability of the nation to buy into this concept of treaty making, so it ought to happen sooner rather than later? Oh, yes, I think so. I, I think that's very much the case. I mean, in a way, it's interesting that you mention this. Um, the whole process of investigating, the whole process of Native Title Tribunal, of um, investigating claims to land, a thorough investigations, hearing of witnesses, and then decisions. Uh, this has been a very important process, but in a sense, the the raw material is widely scattered, held in many, many different places, and I just think it needs the you know the, the power and the wealth of government to pull all this together. Yes, and. You, um, in 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 your work, you talk about Eddie Mabo and the famous Mabo decision from the High Court in the nineteen nineties, which did turn over the notion of terra nullius and said that there was that, that land rights could persist in the Murray Islands in that case. Yes, and it's which I mean that case obviously has a lot of tragedy around it. The plaintiff himself, Mister Mabo, was deceased by the time the decision was given. And also it seems, of course, it was a, a great decision for the people of the Murray Islands, but their their community made it, um, their, their particular circumstances seemed to me to be something that the Australian or the British law could cling on to as saying, ah, oh, these people did have a use of land in the way we understand it. It could almost disenfranchise so many other people who just didn't have the cultivation that was apparent on the Murray Islands. Could you comment on that? Yes, that's true. And my, my view all along, and this goes right back to my earliest discussions with Eddie Mabo, was that indeed uh, they were in a different situation. Uh, they, Their way of life, their economy, their language was much more Papuan than it was Australian. And so they were, in that sense, it was the ideal place to run a land rights case. But the, it was the court itself, literally late in the piece, that asked the, uh, the litigants to make a claim about the whole of Australia. And that was the revolutionary thing. They could have confined themselves, indeed, to those two inhabited islands, Murray and Tarnley, and that would have been, that would have ended it. But they didn't. The court said we are looking at underlying principles. And the underlying principle was that uh, the, the, the English law, the common law at the late 18th century uh, was perfectly able to recognise occupation regardless of the form of economic activity. And therefore, the principles that they developed about Murray Island applied to the whole of Australia. Now, that was the revolutionary aspect of the judgment. So it didn't matter. Uh, and I mean, this, this was the jurisprudence of North America and of New Zealand, that uh, it goes back to that fundamental principle, uh, goes back to common law, goes back to Roman law, that, that the 
people who live on the land must be considered to have a title to it. Uh, and in a way, uh, you have to disprove, I mean, the whole idea of possession is nine-tenths of the law, I mean, in a way that is so deeply rooted in, in as I say, both British and, and you know, European law. Mm. And with um, the idea then of, I mean, there are tragic examples, or it seems to me tragic examples where the connection can't be formed and I, I'm sure your book does discuss it. I can't remember where, but the Yorta Yorta case. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. Which seems to be the the high court as well, but just such different circumstances and such a different outcome. Yes, and that that was. I mean, this goes. This goes. I, I think they went back and looked at, at Brennan, you know, saying that the tides of history had washed away their their, their traditional knowledge, uh, but so that. But other means had to be found uh, to finally recognise that the Yorta Yorta did have, uh, you know, claim on land. But in that part of Australia, it can only be claim on land that doesn't is already owned by someone else uh, with a crown title. Uh, but it does it does recognise uh, a traditional link. And what has happened is that uh, you know, as well as Marbo, there was the which judgment, which recognised the, you know, the continuing right of the local people on all lands that were in the pastoral lease, and that mm. meant a great deal of Australia, particularly right across the north, and also it, uh, it did recognise that, you know, that, that people had a continuing interest. Now, the nature of the interest had to be determined, and what has happened is that um, alongside, parallel with people making claim on the native title, is the process of uh, establishing land rights agreements, you know, land use agreements. And the last time I looked, there were over a thousand of them that had been negotiated, um, whereby the native title uh, tribunal uh, comes along and, and brings together the, uh, the local Aboriginal people. It brings together local government, other landholders, uh, state governments who might have, you know, rights over forests and, and other land, and they come to a land use agreement. Now, these, because this, in a way, the process is much expedited, uh, it seems that many people are seeking to have their rights recognised as a process of the land use agreement rather than making title cases going through the courts. Right. And is there a – so that's that to me suggests that that's a, a practical outcome. It, it gets the result that is re- required and there just seems to be a, a, a resignation that – well, if I put it this way, the decisions you've been speaking about then all involve Indigenous people who I expect would turn up to the courtroom thinking, this is our land, we just need, we don't care how it happens, but this court has to acknowledge that and we will just take the decision. But it does seem, it does seem to have a bit of bitterness because the Indigenous people are saying, we fit within your law, not you don't fit within ours. And yeah. it's oh, it, yes. That, that, that's clearly the case, but as I say, it, um, 
um, there's still quite clearly uh, an acceptance of using the native title legislation and the native tribunal. The problem, or one of the problems, is clearly that it's a very, very long-running process and very expensive. Mm. Um, And it can sometimes take 10 years, as as many people will know. Often, uh, as in the case of Mabo, the original traditional owners have, have passed while the case has been working through the courts. And so the land use agreement is, is, a, is a much quicker way, and uh, it's not, you know, not for me to say whether this is a good thing or not, but uh, it's quite clearly the case that many hundreds of Aboriginal groups all over the country have decided that land use agreements are the best and quickest way in which they can get just the recognition that they have continuing interest in a particular land yes and with with your role as a historian in this area long-standing contribution to the area you have a chapter in the book called the the cost of conquest and i'd like to ask you what you feel the role of historians is in actually contributing to or trying assisting bringing about this notion of treaties or justice for First Nations people, it seems that there is a, a, a quite a firm cultural divide in Australia. There's People take views, can take strong views against any giving up any type of land. There's a Western people. And what is the historian's role in actually getting, contributing to this process? Well, at the very beginning, I think, and this, when I say the beginning in terms of, of where you start, but it's where also my career began. Because I started teaching Australian history at a time when the Aborigines had virtually been written out of the story. I mean, literally. The first, uh, my first course uh, was one which I was teaching that uh, was based on the University of Queensland. Uh, course, and uh, the textbook, uh, very, very well known, widely used Australian history, general history, um, did not have anything about Aborigines. They weren't even mentioned in the index. Is that Mr. Hancock's book? No, no, not not a generation later. It was uh, Greenwood editor, Australia of Social and Political History. Right, and, and so that was that was the most widely used textbook. Uh, it was finished in about 1955, and for 20 years, it would have been the most widely used textbook on Australian history in senior schools and universities. And in many ways, it was a it was a good book. It was multi-authored, but the extraordinary thing was there was nothing about the Aborigines. Why was now, that? living in North Queensland and I knew that that this was extraordinary and I was teaching students who knew that it was an everyday issue that uh, Aborigines and Islanders were in the community, uh, but the relations between, you know, what we used to call race relations were an 
everyday concern. So I knew that, that this was an extraordinary thing, but if you were living elsewhere in Australia, it didn't seem to matter. I, I, when, I, when I started to realise this extraordinary absence, uh, I looked at all the reviews of this book. And if you were not a, a, an author with a chapter in that book, you would have reviewed the book. And not one of the reviewers saw what I saw, the absence, the complete absence of the Aborigines in the story. So my first task was to, and because there were no, almost no books, so I had to go back to the original sources, beginning in Queensland, and eventually, you know, over a period of about 10 years, I went all over Australia uh, to all the libraries and archives um, and also uh, to material in, in Britain um, to try and tell the story of what happened to, to Philly, the absolute blank spots. And so that's, I mean, that's the most important thing is to actually go into the 19th century documents in particular and uh, bring out the raw material mm. and that raw material then is a, is, is, you know, is a resource for students but also other people who don't want to do that work but they want to know and so that's true of novelists and poets and songwriters and filmmakers and visual artists who use that quarried material to understand the story that had been left out. Yes. And with the story that's been left out, your book does go through several massacres, really, really um, defeats of Indigenous people by settlers or by army men. And that in itself seemed to touch a raw nerve in Australia. I mean, I, I was at university when Mr. Winchardle seemed to um, have different views from you on a lot of these matters. And it was um, right. a very, right. um, it, it just seems, it's, it seemed to me at least as though there was almost like some historian, historians were saying, I have my view and my view will, will is what might this evidence must support in some way, shape or form. And that led to criticism of people who seem to be pointing out that there were atrocities in the past. Could you comment on that? Yes, yes, it was a, it was a, a period of intense controversy. Uh, I was really quite expecting this. It took much longer than I thought uh, because it was so it was so shocking. I mean, for several generations, Australians grow up and they're taught that uh, it was a very uniquely peaceful history. Uh, then it comes the shock when, you know, in their middle years, someone comes along and says what you were told was wrong, you know, that it was an utterly different story. So it's not surprising that people reacted and they didn't want to come to terms with this. And there's no doubt that many people were only too pleased when Keith Winshuttle said we had largely made it up. It was fabrication, as he said. Mm. Uh, so that there was, in a sense, people found this reassuring. But what has happened since then, and that was now 20 years ago, that the controversy itself was, you know, uncomfortable at the time, but what it did was 
whole new generation of scholars, mainly working in universities and doing theses, for instance, but a whole new generation of, of academics, of young academics, who went back to the source material and indeed confirmed everything that I've been saying, but also, uh, in a way, greatly increased the death toll. I mean, I had said, uh, and this was uh, what Keith was arguing about, I said it is reasonable to suppose that at least 20,000 Aborigines mm. were killed in the settlement of Australia. He said, no, 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 no. But uh, far from this uh, being rejected, been too large, it's now rejected, I think, as being considerably too small, and I think that's right. I think, you know, I felt that I was, you know, putting a basic flaw onto the likely death toll, um, and was willing to consider it was larger, but the new were particularly, you know, particularly Queensland, but also in Tasmania, because that was just, that was the focal point of Keith Winchuttle's arguments. Um, and there's no doubt that the death toll was, was much higher. The killing went on for a very long time. And it, whether or not we like it, it is an absolute central feature, an inescapable feature of Australian history. Yes. You, you, can't, you can't hide from the manifest uh, material. And the point is that in the 19th century, uh, no one, no one doubted that killing was going on. The debates then were whether it was necessary, whether it was ines an inescapable precondition of settlement, uh, or whether it could have been far less violent. I mean, it wasn't whether killing was taking place, it's whether, whether it was justified. Yes, and um, we have to finish relatively soon, but I would like to ask a couple more questions about this. The first is your book talks about the, and it, this is this seems to grow year by year, whether Australia should change its national day from the 26th of January being the day in which it's understood that the first fleet made some form of in, entry into Australia. Oh, yeah, no, no, the, the 26th is the day that the fleet moved from Botany Bay. The fleet had arrived a week before. The last ships arrived on the 20th of January. I mean, an extraordinary mm. achievement to bring 11 ships all the way in six months, seven months, and bring them all to Botany Bay within a few days of one another. And, you know, amazing. But they, changed, they decided that Botany Bay wasn't the ideal place, and they found Sydney Harbour, and so the expedition moved to Sydney on the 26th. So it made sense if you want to celebrate the founding of Sydney, but it, it doesn't make sense uh, more generally. Either you commemorate the arrival of the, of the full fleet, or more significantly, I think, is the date February the 7th, when the proclamations were read, and the whole community, the whole, you know, convicts and soldiers and settlers and everyone gathered together and Philip read the proclamations, which was the formal annexation of Eastern Australia. That is the date that, that represented the, you know, the, the, 
Yes. Now, that is, so that's that's the the particular time, you know, the, the couple of weeks in, in early Sydney. But my view is that this is a most inappropriate day to commemorate uh, for a variety of reasons, and in particular the British arriving with the idea that the indigenous people over, remember they only claimed the eastern half, New Holland, they didn't make claim on the, the west, which had been obviously discovered by the Dutch. Uh, so they claimed eastern Australia, New Holland, a vast area, and in, within the claim, as we've already mentioned in this discussion, mm. the idea that the Aborigines won had no title to the land, they didn't actually occupy the land, they moved across it. And two, they had absolutely no sovereignty, that is, they had no law and custom uh, which regulated that they were not they were not organized societies. Yes. Now that uh, was so pernicious that it predetermined so much of the disaster that followed. And it was premised either on the mistake that the interior of Australia was largely unoccupied and or the idea that the Aboriginal people were too primitive, unlike the North American Indians, unlike all the Indigenous peoples all over the world, they were uniquely primitive. Now, that, you know, as I say, that was an appalling foundation, and that's where so much of the trouble began. And so I, I think it is you know, a particularly a particularly bad choice for Australia Day. Yes. A final point I'd like to raise similarly to that is you mentioned the notion of the War Memorial in Canberra doing something to acknowledge the harm done to the Indigenous people in essentially what were battles. And it's contrasted with the 200 poles that are erected at the National Gallery. And it seems the question I'd like to ask you to, to consider is at the National Gallery, it's much more, it's a place where you can reflect on tragedy and art gallery. It seems to have that vibe about it. Whereas the War Memorial is... It, is just a place where either Australian soldiers die heroically or we win things. It doesn't have the bit where Australian soldiers commit, it doesn't have the section called atrocity in Vietnam or something like that. No, 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 indeed not. Well, you see, these people have, I mean, for the last 20, 25 years, going right back, uh, many, many prominent Australians, I'm going back to Sir William Dean, you know, was saying this in the 1990s, and many, many other prominent Australians have said, well, why doesn't the War Memorial recognise the conflict within Australia? And many of the historians who actually worked in the War Memorial have said to some of the people like Peter Stanley, but the War Memorial has steadfastly refused to pick up this, this responsibility and have said, well, yes, we, we know all this, but it's the, the role of the National Museum, it's not our role. Now, it's not, I certainly for a long time felt that this, the War Memorial really should be expected. And in fact, you know, 
and if necessary, amend the legislation. But I think now that um, they have indicated they have shown no interest in doing this. I'm not sure that they now are an appropriate institution to deal with this. I think now there should be indeed a separate museum in Canberra, uh, as well funded as the War Memorial, which will commemorate the whole story of conflict right across the continent, which, after all, was conflict about Australia, in Australia, and it went for you know, nearly 150 years. And it is a story that needs to be told. And I think uh, a, war, you know, a new museum is what is required. And yes. remember, Australia has just recently spent $100 million on a museum in northern France about the battles on the Western Front. Mm. Now, that is the sort of money that is required. And that, I think, is what should be done in commemorating the wars, the wars over the control and ownership of Australia, the Australian continent. Yes, I think that's, um, in a way, that would tie in nicely with the some of the comments you made at the start of this conversation, where you, the idea of the First Nations being coextensive with the Australian sovereignty, so that the a second memorial looking at things the way you've just explained in the capital of Australia shows, well, there this is this nation has more than one nation sort of beneath its soil. It yes, would, that's, that's right, that's right. And it would become, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, it would become an important and very, very popular, well, you know, well, not popular in, in, a, in a nice, you know, jolly sense, but, um, and this is, I mean, the... Uh, the opening of the uh, Great Museum about Slavery in Washington mm. is obviously of very, very great importance, and it's you know, it's very hard to get into it because it is so so much in demand, and it would become an extremely important national institution, and would have outreach all over Australia because every every small of the small nations that now, in most cases, have formed you know, um, uh, native title, you know, have formed their own institutions, would then negotiate as to whether they wanted to commemorate the war in their part of Australia, in which case, how would they like to do it, and whether they would like to, like to also involve the white, you know, the white people who were also killed in this process. Yes. And so uh, every part of Australia would then be, uh, you know, there would be discussions and debates about what would be done. And I just think the variety and creativity that would be stimulated by this would make these monuments uh, real places of pilgrimage. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your, your time today, Henry. Could you, before we leave, could you please let our audience know what you are working on now. Uh, well, I'm working, I'm, I'm actually going to start, uh, well, I've just finished uh, along with uh, my ex-PhD student, Nick Clements, a book which is 
a biography of the greatest of the Tasmanian warriors, a man called Tonga Longata, who no one has heard of, mm. and yet he led the fight against the British. Uh, his uh, people, we know as the Oyster Bay and Big River people in central Tasmania, they were undoubtedly the most effective uh, resistance guerrilla fighters anywhere in Australia. And uh, his story is astonishing. And uh, this will, I think people will find this thoroughly amazing uh, story of the incredible courage and determination these people had. They probably, there were probably a thousand people of this, uh, of this part of, of Tasmania when the British arrived. Now, the, most of the fighting took place over about five or six years in the 1820s. And when they finally came to an agreement, an armistice, they didn't surrender. They came down to Hobart to meet the government carrying their spears. When they came to an agreement to end the war, there were only 26 of them left. Gosh. It is an astonishing story, and that is the story that we will be telling, uh, and it will be published uh, out on the 1st of August. Oh, good. Well, that will be – I mean, I've often thought there needs to be some Australian cinema. I mean, I've heard of people like Pemmelwoy. It just it, These are stories that just I will, well need to be brought to people's attention. I mean, the, this when what you've just described then sounds, sounds like a book that we all must read. That astonishing thing is that this, this extraordinary, extraordinary history of resistance, of desperate, desperate attempt to maintain their country and their way of life, um, that, that uh, no one even heard of the man. It's an indication of, of you know, what has been wrong with the way we've been looking at Australian history. Mm. And how did you come about? How did you find this person? Uh, well, uh, it, well, it, 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 if you do as I did in the past, we, you know, Tasmanian records are incredibly detailed and well kept because it was an open air prison. You had a huge bureaucracy that had to record everything. There were uh, in Hobart months, and there were always three or four or five newspapers, local newspapers. So the record, the, 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 the material is, is extraordinary, um, but you've got to get into it. Mm. And uh, as I say, Nick Clemens was my PhD, well, he's my, I did his honours thesis and then a PhD, so he mm. worked for about four or five years on these records, and his thesis was published um, a couple of years ago called Black War. So... Um, if you if if you stop, you know, it takes a lot of years and years of of absolutely detailed research to uncover all of this. But as I say, it's a, an astonishing story. And uh, I mean, you see, we we put we'd always put this much effort into telling the story of our other wars. I mean, the, the great uh, you know the great volumes of. First World War, uh, you know, it's not as if we didn't want to tell stories about war, but we simply didn't want to uh, look at this 
from the point of view of those who are desperately endeavouring to preserve their way of life and their control of their country. That's amazing. Well, thank you. That's thank you, Professor Henry Reynolds. It has been an honour to speak with you to hear these history recalled from you. Thank you for your books in the past as well and for making yourself available today for the audience on this, the Australian and New Zealand channels of the New Books Network. Thank okay, you. Okay, well, thank, thank you very much for your, for your, your interesting questions and uh, it seemed to be a good discussion. Thank you very much.